What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Book 5, Chapter 9 of War and Peace, Volume 2 by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 9 Belieben was now at Army headquarters in a diplomatic capacity, and though he wrote in French and used French jests and French idioms, he described the whole campaign with a fearless self-censure and self-derision genuinely Russian. Belieben wrote that the obligation of diplomatic discretion tormented him, and he was happy to have in Prince Andrew a reliable correspondent to whom he could pour out the bile he had accumulated at the sight of all that was being done in the army. The letter was old, having been written before the battle at Prusa-Jelau. Since the day of our brilliant success at Austerlitz, wrote Belieben, as you know, my dear prince, I never leave headquarters. I have certainly acquired a taste for war, and it is just as well for me. What I have seen during these last three months is incredible. I begin abovo. The enemy of the human race, as you know, attacks the Prussians. The Prussians are our faithful allies who have only betrayed us three times in three years. We take up their cause, but it turns out that the enemy of the human race pays no heed to our fine speeches, and in his rude and savage way throws himself on the Prussians without giving them time to finish the parade they had begun, and in two twists of the hand he breaks them to smithereens and installs himself in the palace at Potsdam. "'I most ardently desire,' writes the King of Prussia to Bonaparte, "'that your Majesty should be received and treated in my palace in a manner agreeable to yourself, and in so far as circumstances allowed, I have hastened to take all steps to that end. May I have succeeded! The Prussian generals pride themselves on being polite to the French, and lay down their arms at the first demand. The head of the garrison at Glogau, with ten thousand men, asks the King of Prussia what he is to do if he is summoned to surrender. All this is absolutely true. In short, hoping to settle matters by taking up a warlike attitude, it turns out that we have landed ourselves in war, and what is more, in war on our own frontiers, with and for the King of Prussia. We have everything in perfect order, only one little thing is lacking, namely a commander-in-chief. As it was considered that the Austerlitz success might have been more decisive had the commander-in-chief not been so young, all our octogenarians were reviewed and of Pozorovsky and Kaminsky the latter was preferred. The general comes to us, Suvorov-like, in a kabika, and is received with acclamations of joy and triumph. On the fourth, the first courier arrives from Petersburg. The mails are taken to the field-marshal's room, for he likes to do everything himself. I am called in to help sort the letters and take those meant for us. The field-marshal looks on and waits for letters addressed to him we search, but none are to be found. The field-marshal grows impatient, and sets to work himself and finds letters from the Emperor to Count T, Prince V, and others. 
Then he bursts into one of his wild furies and rages at everyone and everything, seizes the letters, opens them, and reads those from the Emperor addressed to others. Ah, so that's the way they treat me. No confidence in me. Ah, order to keep an eye on me. Very well, then. Get along with you." So he writes the famous order of the day to General Benningson. I am wounded and cannot ride and consequently cannot command the army. You have brought your army corps to Poltusk, routed. Here it is exposed, and without fuel or forage, so something must be done. And as you yourself reported to Count Buxhuden yesterday, you must think of retreating to our frontier, which do today. From all my writing, he writes to the Emperor, I've got a saddle-sore, which, coming after all my previous journeys, quite prevents my riding and commanding so vast an army, so I have passed on the command to the general next in seniority, Count Buxhuden, having sent him my whole staff and all that belongs to it. Advising him, if there is a lack of bread, to move farther into the interior of Prussia, for only one day's ration of bread remains, and in some regiments none at all, as reported by the division commanders Osterman and Sedmaretsky, and all that the peasants had has been eaten up. I myself will remain in hospital at Ostrolenka till I recover, in regard to which I humbly submit my report, with the information that if the army remains in its present bivouac another fortnight there will not be a healthy man left in it by spring. Grant leave to retire to his country seat to an old man, who is already in any case dishonoured by being unable to fulfil the great and glorious task for which he was chosen. I shall await your most gracious permission here in hospital, that I may not have to play the part of a secretary rather than commander in the army. My removal from the army does not produce the slightest stir. A blind man has left it. There are thousands such as I in Russia. The field marshal is angry with the emperor, and he punishes us all. Isn't it logical? This is the first act. Those that follow are naturally increasingly interesting and entertaining. After the field marshal's departure, it appears that we are within sight of the enemy and must give battle. Buxhuden is commander-in-chief by seniority, but General Benningson does not quite see it. More particularly, as it is he and his corps who are within sight of the enemy, and he wishes to profit by the opportunity to fight a battle on his own hand, as the Germans say. He does so. This is the Battle of Poltusk, which is considered a great victory, but in my opinion was nothing of the kind. We civilians, as you know, have a very bad way of deciding whether a battle was won or lost. Those who retreat after a battle have lost it, is what we say, and according to that it is we who lost the Battle of Poltusk. In short, we retreat after the battle, but send a courier to Petersburg with news of a victory, and General Benningson, hoping to receive from Petersburg the post of Commander-in-Chief as a reward for his victory, does not give up the command of the army to General Buxhuden. During this interregnum we begin a very original and interesting series of maneuvers. Our aim is no longer, as it should be, to avoid or attack the enemy, but solely to avoid General Buxhuden who by right of seniority should be our chief. So energetically do we pursue this aim that, after crossing an unfordable river, we burn the bridges to separate ourselves from our enemy, who at the moment is not Bonaparte but Buxhuden. 
General Buxhuden was all but attacked and captured by a superior enemy force as a result of one of these maneuvers, that enabled us to escape him. Buxhuden pursues us, we scuttle. He hardly crosses the river to our side before we recross to the other. At last our enemy, Buxhuden, catches us and attacks. Both generals are angry, and the result is a challenge on Buxhuden's part and an epileptic fit on Benningson's. But at the critical moment, the courier, who carried the news of our victory at Pultus to Petersburg, returns bringing our appointment as commander-in-chief, and our first foe, Buxhuden, is vanquished. We can now turn our thoughts to the second, Bonaparte. But as it turns out, just at that moment, a third enemy rises before us, namely the orthodox Russian soldiers, loudly demanding bread, meat, biscuits, fodder, and what not. The stores are empty the roads impassable. The Orthodox begin looting, and in a way of which our last campaign can give you no idea. Half the regiments form bands and scour the countryside and put everything to fire and sword. The inhabitants are totally ruined, the hospitals overflow with sick, and famine is everywhere. Twice the marauders even attack our headquarters, and the commander-in-chief has to ask for a battalion to disperse them. During one of these attacks, they carried off my empty portmanteau and my dressing-gown. The Emperor proposes to give all commanders of divisions the right to shoot marauders, but I much fear this will oblige one half the army to shoot the other." At first Prince Andrew read with his eyes only, but after a while, in spite of himself, although he knew how far it was safe to trust Belieben, what he had read began to interest him more and more. When he had read thus far, he crumpled the letter up and threw it away. It was not what he had read that vexed him, but the fact that the life out there in which he had now no part could perturb him. He shut his eyes, rubbed his forehead as if to rid himself of all interest in what he had read, and listened to what was passing in the nursery. Suddenly he thought he heard a strange noise through the door. He was seized with alarm lest something should have happened to the child while he was reading the letter. He went on tiptoe to the nursery door and opened it. Just as he went in, he saw that the nurse was hiding something from him with a scared look, and that Princess Mary was no longer by the cot. "'My dear!' he heard what seemed to him her despairing whisper behind him. As often happens after long sleeplessness and long anxiety, he was seized by an unreasoning panic. It occurred to him that the child was dead. All that he saw and heard seemed to confirm this terror. All is over, he thought, and a cold sweat broke out on his forehead. He went to the cot in confusion, sure that he would find it empty and that the nurse had been hiding the dead baby. He drew the curtain aside, and for some time his frightened, restless eyes could not find the baby. At last he saw him. The rosy boy had tossed about till he lay across the bed with his head lower than the pillow and was smacking his lips in his sleep and breathing evenly. Prince Andrew was as glad to find the boy like that as if he had already lost him. He bent over him, and, as his sister had taught him, tried with his lips whether the child was still feverish. The soft forehead was moist. Prince Andrew touched the head with his hand. Even the hair was wet, so profusely had the child perspired. He was not dead but evidently the crisis was over and he was convalescent. 
Prince Andrew longed to snatch up, to squeeze, to hold his heart, this helpless little creature, but dared not do so. He stood over him, gazing at his head and at the little arms and legs which showed under the blanket. He heard a rustle behind him and a shadow appeared under the curtain of the cot. He did not look round, but still gazing at the infant's face listened to his regular breathing. The dark shadow was Princess Mary, who had come up to the cot with noiseless steps, lifted the curtain and dropped it again behind her. Prince Andrew recognized her without looking, and held out his hand to her. She pressed it. "'He has perspired,' said Prince Andrew. "'I was coming to tell you so.' The child moved slightly in his sleep, smiled and rubbed his forehead against the pillow. Prince Andrew looked at his sister. In the dim shadow of the curtain her luminous eyes shone more brightly than usual from the tears of joy that were in them. She leaned over to her brother and kissed him, slightly catching the curtain of the cot. Each made the other a warning gesture, and stood still in the dim light beneath the curtain, as if not wishing to leave that seclusion where they three were shut off from all the world. Prince Andrew was the first to move away, ruffling his hair against the muslin of the curtain. Yes. This is the one thing left me now," he said with a sigh. End of Book 5, Chapter 9「Book 5, Chapter 10 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5 Chapter 10 Soon after his admission to the Masonic Brotherhood, Pierre went to the Kiev province, where he had the greatest number of serfs, taking with him full directions which he had written down for his own guidance as to what he should do on his estates. When he reached Kiev he sent for all his stewards to the head office and explained to them his intentions and wishes. He told them that steps would be taken immediately to free his serfs and that till then they were not to be overburdened with labor. Women while nursing their babies were not to be sent to work, assistance was to be given to the serfs, punishments were to be admonitory and not corporal, and hospitals, asylums and schools were to be established on all the estates. Some of the stewards, there were semi-literate foremen among them, listened with alarm supposing these words to mean that the young count was displeased with their management and embezzlement of money, some after their first fright were amused by Pierre's lisp, and the new words they had not heard before, others simply enjoyed hearing how the master talked, while the cleverest among them, including the chief steward, understood from this speech how they could best handle the master for their own ends. The chief steward expressed great sympathy with Pierre's intentions, but remarked that, besides these changes, it would be necessary to go into the general state of affairs which was far from satisfactory. Despite Count Bezukhov's enormous wealth, since he had come into an income which was said to amount to five hundred thousand roubles a year, Pierre felt himself far poorer than when his father had made him an allowance of ten thousand roubles. He had a dim perception of the following budget. About eighty thousand went in payments on all the estates to the land bank, about thirty thousand went for the upkeep of the estate near Moscow, the townhouse, and the allowance to the three princesses, about fifteen thousand was given in pensions and the same amount for asylums, 
a hundred fifty thousand alimony was sent to the countess. About seventy thousand went for interest on debts. The building of a new church, previously begun, had cost about ten thousand in each of the last two years, and he did not know how the rest, about one hundred thousand roubles, was spent, and almost every year he was obliged to borrow. Besides this, the chief steward wrote every year telling him of fires and bad harvests, or of the necessity of rebuilding factories and workshops. So the first task Pierre had to face was one for which he had very little aptitude or inclination—practical business. He discussed estate affairs every day with his chief steward. But he felt that this did not forward matters at all. He felt that these consultations were detached from real affairs, and did not link up with them or make them move. On the one hand, the chief steward put the state of things to him in the very worst light, pointing out the necessity of paying off the debts and undertaking new activities with serf labor, to which Pierre did not agree. On the other hand, Pierre demanded that steps should be taken to liberate the serfs, which the steward met by showing the necessity of first paying off the loans from the land bank, and the consequent impossibility of a speedy emancipation. The steward did not say it was quite impossible, but suggested selling the forests in the province of Kostroma, the land lower down the river and the Crimean estate, in order to make it possible, all of which operations according to him were connected with such complicated measures, the removal of injunctions, petitions, permits, and so on, that Pierre became quite bewildered and only replied, "'Yes, yes, do so.' Pierre had none of the practical persistence that would have enabled him to attend to the business himself, and so he disliked it and only tried to pretend to the steward that he was attending to it. The steward, for his part, tried to pretend to the Count that he considered these consultations very valuable for the proprietor and troublesome to himself. In Kiev, Pierre found some people he knew, and strangers hastened to make his acquaintance and joyfully welcomed the rich newcomer the largest landowner of the province. Temptations to Pierre's greatest weakness, the one to which he had confessed when admitted to the lodge, were so strong that he could not resist them. Again, whole days, weeks, and months of his life passed in as great a rush and were as much occupied with evening parties, dinners, lunches, and balls, giving him no time for reflection as in Petersburg. Instead of the new life he had hoped to lead, he still lived the old life, only in new surroundings. Of the three precepts of Freemasonry, Pierre realized that he did not fulfill the one which enjoined every Mason to set an example of moral life, and that of the seven virtues he lacked two—morality and the love of death. He consoled himself with the thought that he fulfilled another of the precepts, that of reforming the human race and had other virtues—love of his neighbor, and especially generosity. In the spring of 1807 he decided to return to Petersburg. On the way he intended to visit all his estates and see for himself how far his orders had been carried out, and in what state were the serfs whom God had entrusted to his care and whom he intended to benefit. The chief steward, who considered the young Count's attempts almost insane, unprofitable to himself, to the Count, and to the serfs, made some concessions. Continuing to represent the liberation of the serfs as impracticable, he arranged for the erection of large buildings, 
schools, hospitals, and asylums, on all the estates before the master arrived. Everywhere preparations were made not for ceremonious welcomes, which he knew Pierre would not like, but for just such gratefully religious ones, with offerings of icons and the bread and salt of hospitality, as according to his understanding of his master, would touch and delude him. The southern spring, the comfortable rapid travelling in a Vienna carriage, and the solitude of the road all had a gladdening effect on Pierre. The estates he had not before visited were each more picturesque than the other. The serfs everywhere seemed thriving and touchingly grateful for the benefits conferred on them. Everywhere were receptions, which though they embarrassed Pierre awakened a joyful feeling in the depth of his heart. In one place the peasants presented him with bread and salt and an icon of St. Peter and St. Paul, asking permission, as a mark of their gratitude for the benefits he had conferred on them, to build a new chantry to the church at their own expense in honor of Peter and Paul, his patron saints. In another place the women with infants in arms met him to thank him for releasing them from hard work. On a third estate the priest, bearing a cross, came to meet him surrounded by children, whom by the Count's generosity he was instructing in reading, writing, and religion. On all estates Pierre saw with his own eyes brick buildings erected or in course of erection, all in one plan for hospitals, schools, and almshouses, which were soon to be opened. Everywhere he saw the steward's accounts, according to which the serfs' manorial labor had been diminished, and heard the touching thanks of deputations of serfs in their full-skirted blue coats. What Pierre did not know was that the place where they presented him with bread and salt and wished to build a chantry in honor of Peter and Paul was a market village where a fair was held on St. Peter's Day, and that the richest peasants, who formed the deputation, had begun the chantry long before, but that nine-tenths of the peasants in that villages were in a state of the greatest poverty. He did not know that, since the nursing mothers were no longer sent to work on his land, they did still harder work on their own land. He did not know that the priest who met him with the cross oppressed the peasants by his exactions, and that the pupils' parents wept at having to let him take their children and secured their release by heavy payments. He did not know that the brick buildings, built to plan, were being built by serfs, whose manorial labor was thus increased, though lessened on paper. He did not know that where the steward had shown him in the accounts that the serfs' payments had been diminished by a third their obligatory manorial work had been increased by a half. And so Pierre was delighted with his visit to his estates, and quite recovered the philanthropic mood in which he had left Petersburg, and wrote enthusiastic letters to his brother instructor as he called the Grand Master. "'How easy it is, how little effort it needs to do so much good,' thought Pierre, "'and how little attention we pay to it.' He was pleased at the gratitude he received but felt abashed at receiving it. His gratitude reminded him of how much more he might do for these simple, kindly people. The chief steward, a very stupid but cunning man who saw perfectly through the naive and intelligent Count, and played with him as with a toy, seeing the effect these prearranged receptions had on Pierre, pressed him still harder with proofs of the impossibility and, above all, the uselessness of freeing the serfs who were quite happy as it was. Pierre, in his secret soul, agreed with the steward that it would be difficult to imagine happier people, and that God only knew what would happen to them when they were free, 
but he insisted, though reluctantly, on what he thought right. The steward promised to do all in his power to carry out the Count's wishes, seeing clearly that not only would the Count never be able to find out whether all measures had been taken for the sale of the land and forests and to release them from the land bank, but would probably never even inquire, and would never know that the newly erected buildings were standing empty, and that the serfs continued to give in money and work all that other people's serfs gave, that is to say, all that could be got out of them. End of Book 5, Chapter 10book 5 chapter 11 of war and peace volume 2 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 5 chapter 11 returning from his journey through south russia in the happiest state of mind pierre carried out an intention he had long had of visiting his friend bolkonsky whom he had not seen for 2 years Bogucharovo lay in a flat, uninteresting part of the country, among fields and forests of fir and birch, which were partly cut down. The house lay behind a newly dug pond filled with water to the brink, and with banks still bare of grass. It was at the end of a village that stretched along the high road in the midst of a young copse in which were a few fir trees. The homestead consisted of a threshing floor, outhouses, stables, a bathhouse, a lodge, and a large brick house with semicircular facades still in course of construction. Round the house was a garden newly laid out. The fences and gates were new and solid. Two fire pumps and a water cart, painted green, stood in a shed. The paths were straight, the bridges were strong, and had handrails. Everything bore an impress of tidiness and good management. Some domestic serfs Pierre met, in reply to inquiries as to where the prince lived, pointed out a small newly built lodge close to the pond. Anton, a man who had looked after Prince Andrew in his boyhood, helped Pierre out of his carriage, said that the prince was at home, and showed him into a clean little anteroom. Pierre was struck by the modesty of the small though clean house, after the brilliant surroundings in which he at last met his friend in Petersburg. He quickly entered the small reception-room with its still unplastered wooden walls redolent of pine, and would have gone farther, but Anton ran ahead on tiptoe and knocked at a door. "'Well, what is it?' came a sharp, unpleasant voice. "'A visitor,' answered Anton. "'Ask him to wait,' and the sound was heard of a chair being pushed back. Pierre went with rapid steps to the door and suddenly came face to face with Prince Andrew, who came out frowning and looking old. Pierre embraced him, and lifting his spectacles, kissed his friend on the cheek and looked at him closely. "'Well, I did not expect you. I am very glad,' said Prince Andrew. Pierre said nothing. He looked fixedly at his friend with surprise. He was struck by the change in him. His words were kindly, and there was a smile on his lips and face, but his eyes were dull and lifeless, and in spite of his evident wish to do so, he could not give them a joyous and glad sparkle. Prince Andrew had grown thinner, paler, and more manly-looking, but what amazed and estranged Pierre till he got used to it were his inertia and a wrinkle on his brow indicating prolonged concentration on some one thought. As is usually the case with people meeting after a prolonged separation, it was long before their conversation could settle on anything. 
they put questions and gave brief replies about things they knew ought to be talked over at length. At last the conversation gradually settled on some of the topics at first lightly touched on—their past life, plans for the future, Pierre's journeys and occupations, the war and so on. The preoccupation and despondency which Pierre had noticed in his friend's look was now still more clearly expressed in the smile with which he listened to Pierre, especially when he spoke with joyful animation of the past or the future. It was as if Prince Andrew would have liked to sympathize with what Pierre was saying, but could not. The latter began to feel that it was in bad taste to speak of his enthusiasms, dreams, and hopes of happiness or goodness in Prince Andrew's presence. He was ashamed to express his new Masonic views, which had been particularly revived and strengthened by his late tour. He checked himself, fearing to seem naive. Yet he felt an irresistible desire to show his friend as soon as possible that he was now a quite different and better Pierre than he had been in Petersburg. "'I can't tell you how much I have lived through since then. I hardly know myself again.' "'Yes, we have altered much, very much since then,' said Prince Andrew. "'Well, and you? What are your plans?' "'Plans,' repeated Prince Andrew ironically. "'My plans?' he said, as if astonished at the word. "'Well, you see, I'm building. I mean to settle here altogether next year.' Pierre looked silently and searchingly into Prince Andrew's face, which had grown much older. "'No, I meant to ask—' Pierre began, but Prince Andrew interrupted him. "'But why talk of me? Talk to me, yes. Tell me about your travels and all you have been doing on your estates.' Pierre began describing what he had done on his estates, trying as far as possible to conceal his own part in the improvements that had been made. Prince Andrew several times prompted Pierre's story of what he had been doing, as though it were all an old-time story, and he listened not only with interest but even as if ashamed of what Pierre was telling him. Pierre felt uncomfortable and even depressed in his friend's company, and at last became silent. "'I'll tell you what, my dear fellow said Prince Andrew, who evidently also felt depressed and constrained with his visitor. I am only bivouacked here, and have just come to look round. I am going back to my sister to-day. I will introduce you to her. But of course you know her already," he said, evidently trying to entertain a visitor with whom he now found nothing in common. We will go after dinner. And would you now like to look round my place? They went out and walked about till dinner-time, talking of the political news and common acquaintances, like people who do not know each other intimately. Prince Andrew spoke with some animation and interest only of the new homestead he was constructing and its buildings, but even here, while on the scaffolding, in the midst of a talk explaining the future arrangements of the house, he interrupted himself. However, this is not at all interesting. Let us have dinner, and then we'll set off. At dinner, conversation turned on Pierre's marriage. "'I was very much surprised when I heard of it,' said Prince Andrew. Pierre blushed, as he always did when it was mentioned, and said hurriedly, "'I will tell you some time how it all happened. But you know it is all over, and forever.' "'Forever?' said Prince Andrew. "'Nothing's forever.' "'But you know how it all ended, don't you? You heard of the duel?' and so you had to go through that, too. 
"'One thing I thank God for is that I did not kill that man,' said Pierre. "'Why so?' asked Prince Andrew. "'To kill a vicious dog is a very good thing, really.' "'No, to kill a man is bad, wrong.' "'Why is it wrong?' urged Prince Andrew. "'It is not given to man to know what is right and what is wrong. Men always did and always will err, and in nothing more than in what they consider right and wrong.' "'What does harm to another is wrong?' said Pierre feeling with pleasure that for the first time since his arrival Prince Andrew was roused, had begun to talk, and wanted to express what had brought him to his present state. "'And who has told you what is bad for another man?' he asked. "'Bad! Bad!' exclaimed Pierre. "'We all know what is bad for ourselves.' "'Yes, we know that. But the harm I am conscious of in myself is something I cannot inflict on others,' said Prince Andrew growing more and more animated and evidently wishing to express his new outlook to Pierre. He spoke in French. "'I only know two very real evils in life, remorse and illness. The only good is the absence of those evils. To live for myself avoiding those two evils is my whole philosophy now.' "'And love of one's neighbor and self-sacrifice?' began Pierre. "'No, I can't agree with you.' To live only so as to not to do evil and not to have to repent is not enough. I lived like that. I lived for myself and ruined my life. And only now, when I am living—or at least trying—Pierre's modesty made him correct himself—to live for others, only now have I understood all the happiness of life. No, I shall not agree with you, and you do not really believe what you are saying." Prince Andrew looked silently at Pierre with an ironic smile. When you see my sister, Princess Mary, you'll get on with her," he said. "'Perhaps you are right for yourself,' he added after a short pause. "'But everyone lives in his own way. You lived for yourself and say you nearly ruined your life and only found happiness when you began living for others. I experienced just the reverse. I lived for glory. And after all, what is glory? The same love of others a desire to do something for them, a desire for their approval. So I lived for others, and not almost, but quite ruined my life. And I have become calmer since I began to live only for myself." "'But what do you mean by living only for yourself?' asked Pierre, growing excited. "'What about your son, your sister, and your father?' "'But that's just the same as myself. They are not others,' explained Prince Andrew. The others, one's neighbors, the Prochan, as you and Princess Mary call it, are the chief source of all error and evil. Le Prochan, your Kiev peasants to whom you want to do good." And he looked at Pierre with a mocking, challenging expression. He evidently wished to draw him on. "'You are joking,' replied Pierre, growing more and more excited. "'What error or evil can there be in wishing to do good, and even doing a little? though I did very little and did it very badly. What evil can there be in it if unfortunate people, our serfs, people like ourselves, were growing up and dying with no idea of God and truth, beyond ceremonies and meaningless prayers, and are now instructed in a comforting belief in future life, retribution, recompense, and consolation? 
What evil and error are there in it, if people were dying of disease without help while material assistance could so easily be rendered, and I supplied them with a doctor, a hospital, and an asylum for the aged? And is it not a palpable, unquestionable good if a peasant, or a woman with a baby, has no rest day or night, and I give them rest and leisure?" said Pierre, hurrying and lisping. And I have done that, though badly and to a small extent. But I have done something toward it, and you cannot persuade me that it was not a good action, and more than that, you can't make me believe that you do not think so yourself. And the main thing is," he continued, that I know, and know for certain, that the enjoyment of doing this good is the only sure happiness in life." "'Yes, if you put it like that, it's quite a different matter,' said Prince Andrew. I build a house and lay out a garden, and you build hospitals. The one and the other may serve as a pastime. But what's right and what's good must be judged by one who knows all, but not by us. Well, you want an argument," he added. Come on, then. They rose from the table and sat down in the entrance porch which served as a veranda. Come, let's argue, then," said Prince Andrew. You talk of schools, he went on, crooking a finger education and so forth. That is, you want to raise him—pointing to a peasant who passed by them taking off his cap—from his animal condition and awaken in him spiritual needs, while it seems to me that animal happiness is the only happiness possible, and that is just what you want to deprive him of. I envy him, but you want to make him what I am, without giving him my means. Then you say, lighten his toil. But as I see it, Physical labor is as essential to him, as much a condition of his existence, as mental activity is to you or me. You can't help thinking. I go to bed after two in the morning, thoughts come, and I can't sleep but toss about till dawn, because I think and can't help thinking, just as he can't help plowing and mowing. If he didn't, he would go to the drink-shop or fall ill. Just as I could not stand his terrible physical labor, but should die of it in a week, so he could not stand my physical idleness, but would grow fat and die. The third thing—what else was it you talked about?" and Prince Andrew crooked a third finger. Ah, yes, hospitals, medicine. He has a fit, he is dying, and you come and bleed him and patch him up. He will drag about as a cripple, a burden to everybody, for another ten years it would be far easier and simpler for him to die. Others are being born, and there are plenty of them as it is. It would be different if you grudged losing a laborer—that's how I regard him—but you want to cure him from love of him. And he does not want that. And besides, what a notion that medicine ever cured anyone! Killed them, yes," said he, frowning angrily and turning away from Pierre. Prince Andrew expressed his ideas so clearly and distinctly that it was evident he had reflected on this subject more than once, and he spoke readily and rapidly, like a man who has not talked for a long time. His glance became more animated as his conclusions became more hopeless. "'Oh, that is dreadful, dreadful!' said Pierre. "'I don't understand how one can live with such ideas. I had such moments myself not long ago in Moscow and when travelling but at such times I collapsed so that I don't live at all. Everything seems hateful to me, myself most of all. Then I don't eat, don't wash. 
and how is it with you?' "'Why not wash? That is not cleanly,' said Prince Andrew. "'On the contrary, one must try to make one's life as pleasant as possible. I am alive, that is not my fault, so I must live out my life as best I can without hurting others.' "'But with such ideas, what motive have you for living? One would sit without moving, undertaking nothing. Life as it is leaves one no peace. I should be thankful to do nothing, but here on the one hand the local nobility have done me the honour to choose me to be their marshal. It was all I could do to get out of it. They could not understand that I have not the necessary qualifications for it, the kind of good-natured, fussy shallowness necessary for the position. Then there's this house, which must be built in order to have a nook of one's own in which to be quiet. And now there's this recruiting. Why aren't you serving in the army? After Austerlitz, said Prince Andrew gloomily. No, thank you very much. I have promised myself not to serve again in the active Russian army. And I won't, not even if Bonaparte were here at Smolensk threatening Bald Hills. Even then I wouldn't serve in the Russian army. Well, as I was saying, he continued, recovering his composure, now there's this recruiting. My father is chief in command of the third district, and my only way of avoiding active service is to serve under him. Then you are serving? I am. He paused a little while. And why do you serve? Why, for this reason. My father is one of the most remarkable men of his time. But he is growing old, and though not exactly cruel, he has too energetic a character. He is so accustomed to unlimited power that he is terrible, and now he has this authority of a commander-in-chief of the recruiting granted by the Emperor. If I had been two hours late a fortnight ago, he would have had a paymaster's clerk at Yuknova hanged," said Prince Andrew with a smile. So I am serving because I alone have any influence with my father, and now and then can save him from actions which would torment him afterwards. Well, there you see. Yes, but it is not as you imagine, Prince Andrew continued. I did not and do not, in the least, care about that scoundrel of a clerk, who had stolen some boots from the recruits. I should even have been very glad to see him hanged, but I was sorry for my father. That again is for myself. Prince Andrew grew more and more animated. His eyes glittered feverishly while he tried to prove to Pierre that in his actions there was no desire to do good to his neighbor. "'There now, you wish to liberate your serfs,' he continued. "'That is a very good thing, but not for you. I don't suppose you ever had anyone flogged or sent to Siberia, and still less for your serfs. If they are beaten, flogged, or sent to Siberia, I don't suppose they are any the worse off.' In Siberia they lead the same animal life, and the stripes on their bodies heal, and they are happy as before. But it is a good thing for proprietors who perish morally, bring remorse upon themselves, stifle this remorse, and grow callous, as a result of being able to inflict punishments justly and unjustly. It is those people I pity, and for their sake I should like to liberate the serfs. You may not have seen, but I have seen, how good men brought up in those traditions of unlimited power, in time when they grow more irritable, become cruel and harsh, are conscious of it, 
but cannot restrain themselves and grow more and more miserable." Prince Andrew spoke so earnestly that Pierre could not help thinking that these thoughts had been suggested to Prince Andrew by his father's case. He did not reply. So, that's what I'm sorry for. Human dignity, peace of mind, purity, and not the serfs' backs and foreheads, which, beat and shave as you may, always remain the same backs and foreheads. No, no, a thousand times no. I shall never agree with you," said Pierre. End of Book Five, Chapter Eleven Book Five, Chapter Twelve of War and Peace, Volume Two by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Twelve in the evening, Andrew and Pierre got into the open carriage and drove to Bald Hills. Prince Andrew, glancing at Pierre, broke the silence now and then with remarks which showed that he was in a good temper. Pointing to the fields, he spoke of the improvements he was making in his husbandry. Pierre remained gloomily silent, answering in monosyllables and apparently immersed in his own thoughts. He was thinking that Prince Andrew was unhappy had gone astray, did not see the true light, and that he, Pierre, ought to aid, enlighten, and raise him. But as soon as he thought of what he should say, he felt that Prince Andrew, with one word, one argument, would upset all his teaching, and he shrank from beginning, afraid of exposing to possible ridicule what to him was precious and sacred. "'No, but why do you think so?' Pierre suddenly began lowering his head and looking like a bull about to charge. Why do you think so? You should not think so." "'Think? What about?' asked Prince Andrew with surprise. "'About life, about man's destiny. It can't be so. I myself thought like that, and do you know what saved me? Freemasonry. No, don't smile. Freemasonry is not a religious ceremonial sect, as I thought it was. Freemasonry is the best expression of the best, the eternal aspects of humanity." And he began to explain Freemasonry, as he understood it, to Prince Andrew. He said that Freemasonry is the teaching of Christianity freed from the bonds of state and church, a teaching of equality, brotherhood, and love. Only our holy brotherhood has the real meaning of life. All the rest is a dream," said Pierre. Understand, my dear fellow, that, outside this union, all is filled with deceit and falsehood. And I agree with you that nothing is left for an intelligent and good man but to live out his life, like you, merely trying not to harm others. But make our fundamental convictions your own, join our brotherhood, give yourself up to us, let yourself be guided, and you will at once feel yourself, as I have felt myself, a part of that vast invisible chain, the beginning of which is hidden in heaven," said Pierre. Prince Andrew, looking straight in front of him, listened in silence to Pierre's words. More than once, when the noise of the wheels prevented his catching what Pierre said, he asked him to repeat it, and by the peculiar glow that came into Prince Andrew's eyes and by his silence, Pierre saw that his words were not in vain, 
and that Prince Andrew would not interrupt him or laugh at what he said. They reached a river that had overflowed its banks and which they had to cross by ferry. While the carriage and horses were being placed on it, they also stepped on the raft. Prince Andrew, leaning his arms on the raft railing, gazed silently at the flooding waters glittering in the setting sun. "'Well, what do you think about it?' Pierre asked. "'Why are you silent?' "'What do I think about it? I am listening to you. It's all very well. You say, join our brotherhood, and we will show you the aim of life, the destiny of man, and the laws which govern the world. But who are we? Men! How is it you know everything? Why do I alone not see what you see? You see a reign of goodness and truth on earth, but I don't see it." Pierre interrupted him. "'Do you believe in a future life?' he asked. "'A future life?' Prince Andrew repeated. But Pierre, giving him no time to reply, took the repetition for a denial, the more readily as he knew Prince Andrew's former atheistic convictions. You say you can't see a reign of goodness and truth on earth. Nor could I. And it cannot be seen if one looks on our life here as the end of everything. On earth, here on this earth, Pierre pointed to the fields, there is no truth. All is false and evil. But in the universe, in the whole universe, there is a kingdom of truth. And we, who are now the children of earth, are, eternally, children of the whole universe. Don't I feel in my soul that I am part of this vast, harmonious whole? Don't I feel that I form one link, one step, between the lower and higher beings in this vast, harmonious multitude of beings in whom the Deity, the supreme power, if you prefer the term, is manifest? If I see, clearly see, that ladder leading from plant to man, why should I suppose it breaks off at me and does not go farther and farther? I feel that I cannot vanish, since nothing vanishes in this world, but that I shall always exist and always have existed. I feel that beyond me and above me there are spirits, and that in this world there is truth." "'Yes, that is Herder's theory,' said Prince Andrew. "'But it is not that which can convince me, dear friend. Life and death are what convince. What convinces is when one sees a being dear to one, bound up with one's own life, before whom one was to blame and had hoped to make it right." Prince Andrew's voice trembled and he turned away. And suddenly that being is seized with pain, suffers and ceases to exist. Why? It cannot be that there is no answer. And I believe there is. That's what convinces. That is what has convinced me," said Prince Andrew. "'Yes, yes, of course,' said Pierre. "'Isn't that what I'm saying?' "'No. All I say is that it is not argument that convinces me of the necessity of a future life, but this. When you go hand in hand with someone, and all at once that person vanishes there into nowhere, and you yourself are left facing that abyss and look in. And I have looked in. Well, that's it, then. You know that there is a there, and there is a someone. There is the future life. The someone is God." Prince Andrew did not reply. The carriage and horses had long since been taken off, onto the farther bank and reharnessed. 
The sun had sunk half below the horizon, and an evening frost was starring the puddles near the ferry. But Pierre and Andrew, to the astonishment of the footmen, coachmen, and ferrymen, still stood on the raft and talked. "'If there is a God in future life, there is truth and good, and man's highest happiness consists in striving to attain them. We must live, we must love, and we must believe that we live not only today on this scrap of earth, but have lived and shall live forever, there, in the whole,' said Pierre, and he pointed to the sky. Prince Andrew stood leaning on the railing of the raft, listening to Pierre, and he gazed with his eyes fixed on the red reflection of the sun gleaming on the blue waters. There was perfect stillness. Pierre became silent. The raft had long since stopped, and only the waves of the current beat softly against it below. Prince Andrew felt as if the sound of the waves kept up a refrain to Pierre's words, whispering, "'It is true. Believe it.' He sighed, and glanced with a radiant, childlike, tender look at Pierre's face, flushed and rapturous, but yet shy before his superior friend. "'Yes, if it only were so,' said Prince Andrew. "'However, it is time to get on,' he added, and stepping off the raft, he looked up at the sky to which Pierre had pointed, and for the first time since Austerlitz saw that high everlasting sky he had seen while lying on that battlefield, and something that had long been slumbering, something that was best within him, suddenly awoke, joyful and youthful in his soul. It vanished as soon as he returned to the customary conditions of his life, but he knew that this feeling which he did not know how to develop existed within him. His meeting with Pierre formed an epoch in Prince Andrew's life. Though outwardly he continued to live in the same old way, inwardly he began a new life. End of Book 5, Chapter 12book 5 chapter 13 of war and peace volume 2 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 5 chapter 13 it was getting dusk when prince andrew and pierre drove up to the front entrance of the house at bald hills as they approached the house Prince Andrew, with a smile, drew Pierre's attention to a commotion going on at the back porch. A woman, bent with age, with a wallet on her back and a short, long-haired young man in a black garment, had rushed back to the gate on seeing the carriage driving up. The two women ran out after them, and all four, looking round at the carriage, ran in dismay up the steps of the back porch. "'Those are Mary's God's folk,' said Prince Andrew. They have mistaken us for my father. This is the one matter in which she disobeys him. He orders these pilgrims to be driven away, but she receives them." "'But what are God's folk?' asked Pierre. Prince Andrew had no time to answer. The servants came out to meet them, and he asked where the old prince was and whether he was expected back soon. The old prince had gone to the town and was expected back any minute. Prince Andrew led Pierre to his own apartments, which were always kept in perfect order and readiness for him in his father's house. He himself went to the nursery. "'Let us go and see my sister,' he said to Pierre when he returned. "'I have not found her yet. She is hiding now, 
sitting with her God's folk. It will serve her right. She will be confused, but you will see her God's folk. It's really very curious." "'What are God's folk?' asked Pierre. "'Come, and you'll see for yourself.' Prince Mary really was disconcerted, and red patches came on her face when they went in. In her snug room, with lamps burning before the icon stand, a young lad with a long nose and long hair, wearing a monk's cassock, sat on the sofa beside her, behind a samovar. Near them, in an armchair, sat a thin, shriveled old woman, with a meek expression on her childlike face. "'Andrew, why didn't you warn me?' said the princess, with mild reproach, as she stood before her pilgrims like a hen before her chickens. "'Charmée de vous voir. Je suis très content de vous voir. Delighted to see you. I am very glad to see you she said to Pierre, as he kissed her hand. She had known him as a child, and now his friendship with Andrew, his misfortune with his wife, and above all his kindly simple face disposed her favorably toward him. She looked at him with her beautiful radiant eyes and seemed to say, I'd like you very much, but please don't laugh at my people. After exchanging the first greetings they sat down. Ah, and Ivanushka is here too, said Prince Andrew, glancing with a smile at the young pilgrim. "'Andrew!' said Princess Mary imploringly. "'Il faut que vous sachiez que c'est une femme.' "'You must know that this is a woman,' said Prince Andrew to Pierre. "'Andrew! En nom de Dieu!' "'For heaven's sake!' Princess Mary repeated. It was evident that Prince Andrew's ironical tone toward the pilgrims and Princess Mary's helpless attempts to protect them were their customary long-established relations on the matter. "'Mais, mes bon amis,' said Prince Andrew, "'vous devriez au contraire mettre reconnaissance de ce que j'explique à Pierre votre intimité de ce avec ce jeune homme.' "'But, my dear, you ought on the contrary to be grateful to me for explaining to Pierre your intimacy with this young man.' "'Really?' said Pierre, gazing over his spectacles with curiosity and seriousness, for which Princess Mary was specially grateful to him, into Ivanushka's face, who, seeing that she was being spoken about, looked round at them all with crafty eyes. Princess Mary's embarrassment on her people's account was quite unnecessary. They were not in the least abashed. The old woman, lowering her eyes but casting side glances at the newcomers, had turned her cup upside down and placed a nibbled bit of sugar beside it, and sat quietly in her armchair, though hoping to be offered another cup of tea. Ivanushka, sipping out of her saucer, looked with sly womanish eyes from under her brows at the young men. "'Where have you been, to Kiev?' Prince Andrew asked the old woman. "'I have, good sir,' she answered garrulously. "'Just at Christmas time, I was deemed worthy to partake of the holy and heavenly sacraments at the shrine of the saint. And now I'm from Koyazin, master, where a great and wonderful blessing has been revealed." "'And was Ivanushka with you?' "'I go by myself, benefactor,' said Ivanushka, trying to speak in a bass voice. "'I only came across Pelagea in Yuknovo.' Pelagea interrupted her companion. She evidently wished to tell what she had seen. In Koyazin, master, a wonderful blessing has been revealed." "'What is it, some new relics?' asked Prince Andrew. 
Andrew, do leave off, said Princess Mary. Don't tell him, Pelagea. No, why not, my dear? Why shouldn't I? I like him. He is kind. He is one of God's chosen. He's a benefactor. He once gave me ten roubles, I remember. When I was in Kiev, Crazy Cyril says to me, He's one of God's own, and goes barefoot summer and winter. He says, Why are you not going to the right place? Go to Kolyazin, where a wonder-working icon of the Holy Mother of God has been revealed. On hearing those words, I said good-bye to the holy folk and went. All were silent. Only the pilgrim woman went on in measured tones, drawing in her breath. So I come, master, and the people say to me, A great blessing has been revealed. Holy oil trickles from the cheeks of our blessed mother, the holy virgin mother of God. All right, all right, you can tell us afterwards, said Princess Mary, flushing. Let me ask her, said Pierre. Did you see it yourselves? he inquired. Oh, yes, master, I was found worthy. Such a brightness on the face, like the light of heaven, and from the blessed mother's cheek it drops and drops. But, dear me, that must be a fraud, said Pierre naively, who had listened attentively to the pilgrim. Oh, master, what are you saying? exclaimed the horrified Pelagea, turning to Princess Mary for support. They impose on the people, he repeated. Lord Jesus Christ! exclaimed the pilgrim woman, crossing herself. Oh, don't speak so, master! There was a general who did not believe, and said, The monks cheat, and as soon as he'd said it, he went blind. And he dreamed that the Holy Virgin Mother of the Kiev catacombs came to him and said, Believe in me, and I will make you whole. So he begged, Take me to her, take me to her. It's the real truth, I'm telling you, I saw it myself. So he was brought, quite blind, straight to her, and he goes up to her and falls down and says, Make me whole, says he, and I'll give thee what the Tsar bestowed on me. I saw it myself, master. The star is fixed into the icon. Well, and what do you think? He received his sight. It's a sin to speak so. God will punish you," she said, admonishingly, turning to Pierre. "'How did the star get into the icon?' Pierre asked. "'And was the Holy Mother promoted to the rank of general?' said Prince Andrew, with a smile. Pelagea suddenly grew quite pale and clasped her hands. "'Oh, master, master, what a sin! And you who have a son!' she began, her pallor suddenly turning to a vivid red. "'Master, what have you said? God forgive you!' And she crossed herself. "'Lord, forgive him! My dear, what does it mean?' she asked, turning to Princess Mary. She got up, and almost crying, began to arrange her wallet. She evidently felt frightened and ashamed to have accepted charity in a house where such things could be said and was at the same time sorry to have now to forego the charity of this house. "'Now why need you do it?' said Princess Mary. "'Why did you come to me?' "'Come, Pelagea, I was joking,' said Pierre. "'Princess, ma parole, je n'ai pas voulu la foncer. "'Princess, on my word, I did not wish to offend her.' "'I did not mean anything. I was only joking,' he said smiling shyly and trying to efface his offence. 
It was all my fault, and Andrew was only joking." Pelagea stopped doubtfully, but in Pierre's face there was such a look of sincere penitence, and Prince Andrew glanced so meekly now at her and now at Pierre, that she was gradually reassured. End of Book Five, Chapter Thirteen Book Five, Chapter Fourteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Fourteen The pilgrim woman was appeased, and being encouraged to talk, gave a long account of Father Amphilicus, who led so holy a life that his hand smelled of incense, and how on her last visit to Kiev, some monks she knew let her have the keys of the catacombs, and how she, taking some dried bread with her, had spent two days in the catacombs with the saints. I'd pray a while to one, ponder a while, then go on to another. I'd sleep a bit, and then again go and kiss the relics, and there was such a peace all around, such blessedness, that one don't want to come out, even into the light of heaven again. Pierre listened to her attentively and seriously. Prince Andrew went out of the room, and then, leaving God's folk to finish their tea, Princess Mary took Pierre into the drawing-room. "'You are very kind,' she said to him. "'Oh, I really did not mean to hurt her feelings. I understand them so well and have the greatest respect for them.' Princess Mary looked at him silently and smiled affectionately. I have known you a long time, you see, and am as fond of you as of a brother," she said. "'How did you find Andrew?' she added hurriedly, not giving him time to reply to her affectionate words. "'I am very anxious about him. His health was better in the winter, but last spring his wound reopened, and the doctor said he ought to go away for a cure. And I am also very much afraid for him spiritually. He has not a character like us women, who, when we suffer, can weep away our sorrows. He keeps it all within him. Today he is cheerful and in good spirits, but that is the effect of your visit. He is not often like that. If you could persuade him to go abroad, he needs activity, and this quiet regular life is very bad for him. Others don't notice it, but I see it." Toward ten o'clock the men-servants rushed to the front door, hearing the bells of the old prince's carriage approaching. Prince Andrew and Pierre also went out into the porch. "'Who's that?' asked the old prince, noticing Pierre as he got out of the carriage. "'Ah, very glad. Kiss me,' he said, having learned who the young stranger was. The old prince was in a good temper and very gracious to Pierre. Before supper, Prince Andrew, coming back to his father's study, found him disputing hotly with his visitor. Pierre was maintaining that a time would come when there would be no more wars. The old prince disputed it chafingly, but without getting angry. "'Drain the blood from men's veins and put in water instead, then there will be no more war. Old women's nonsense, old women's nonsense,' he repeated, but still he patted Pierre affectionately on the shoulder and then went up to the table where Prince Andrew, evidently not wishing to join in the conversation, was looking over the papers his father had brought from town. 
the old prince went up to him and began to talk business. The marshal, a Count Rostov, hasn't sent half his contingent. He came to town and wanted to invite me to dinner. I gave him a pretty dinner. And there, look at this. Well, my boy, the old prince went on, addressing his son and patting Pierre on the shoulder, a fine fellow, your friend. I like him. He stirs me up. Another says clever things, and one doesn't care to listen. But this one talks rubbish, yet stirs an old fellow up. Well, go. Get along. Perhaps I'll come and sit with you at supper. We'll have another dispute. "'Make friends with my little fool, Princess Mary!' he shouted after Pierre, through the door. Only now, on his visit to Bald Hills, did Pierre fully realize the strength and charm of his friendship with Prince Andrew. That charm was not expressed so much in his relations with him as with all his family and with the household. With the stern old prince and the gentle, timid Princess Mary, though he had scarcely known them, Pierre at once felt like an old friend. They were all fond of him already. Not only Princess Mary, who had been won by his gentleness with the pilgrims, gave him her most radiant looks, but even the one-year-old Prince Nicholas, as his grandfather called him, smiled at Pierre and let himself be taken in his arms, and Michael Ivanovitch and Mademoiselle Bourienne looked at him with pleasant smiles when he talked to the old prince. The old prince came in to supper. This was evidently on Pierre's account. And during the two days of the young man's visit he was extremely kind to him and told him to visit them again. When Pierre had gone and the members of the household met together, they began to express their opinions of him as people always do after a new acquaintance has left. But as seldom happens, no one said anything but what was good of him. End of Book 5, Chapter 14《Book Five, Chapter Fifteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Fifteen. When returning from his leave, Rostov felt, for the first time, how close was the bond that united him to Denisov and the whole regiment. On approaching it, Rostov felt as he had done when approaching his home in Moscow. When he saw the first hussar with the unbuttoned uniform of his regiment, when he recognized red-haired Dementiev and saw the picket-ropes of the roan horses, when Lavrushka gleefully shouted to his master, "'The Count has come!' and Denisov, who had been asleep on his bed, ran all disheveled out of the mud-hut to embrace him, and the officers collected round to greet the new arrival, Rostov experienced the same feeling as when his mother, his father, and his sister had embraced him, and tears of joy choked him so that he could not speak. The regiment was also a home, and as unalterably dear and precious as his parents' house. When he had reported himself to the commander of the regiment and had been reassigned to his former squadron, had been on duty and had gone out foraging, when he had again entered into all the little interests of the regiment and felt himself deprived of liberty and bound in one narrow, unchanging frame, he experienced the same sense of peace, of moral support, and the same sense of being at home here in his own place, as he had felt under the parental roof. But here was none of all that turmoil of the world at large, 
where he did not know his right place and took mistaken decisions. Here was no Sonia with whom he ought or ought not to have an explanation. Here was no possibility of going there or not going there. Here there were not twenty-four hours in the day which could be spent in such a variety of ways. There was not that innumerable crowd of people of whom not one was nearer to him or farther from him than another. There were none of those uncertain and undefined money relations with his father, and nothing to recall that terrible loss to Dolokhov. Here in the regiment all was clear and simple. The whole world was divided into two unequal parts. One, our Pavlograd regiment, the other, all the rest. And the rest was no concern of his. In the regiment everything was definite. Who was lieutenant, who captain, who was a good fellow, who a bad one, and most of all, who was a comrade. The canteen-keeper gave one credit. One's pay came every four months. There was nothing to think out or decide. You had only to do nothing that was considered bad in the Pavlograd regiment, and when given an order, to do what was clearly, distinctly, and definitely ordered, and all would be well. Having once more entered into the definite conditions of this regimental life, Rostov felt the joy and relief a tired man feels on lying down to rest. Life in the regiment, during this campaign, was all the pleasanter for him because, after his loss to Dolokhov, for which, in spite of all his family's efforts to console him, he could not forgive himself, he had made up his mind to atone for his fault by serving, not as he had done before, but really well, and by being a perfectly first-rate comrade and officer. In a word, a splendid man altogether, a thing which seemed so difficult out in the world, but so possible in the regiment. After his losses, he had determined to pay back his debt to his parents in five years. He received ten thousand roubles a year, but now resolved to take only two thousand and leave the rest to repay the debt to his parents. Our army, after repeated retreats and advances and battles at Poltusk and Prusich Elau, was concentrated near Bartenstein. It was awaiting the Emperor's arrival, and the beginning of a new campaign. The Pavlograd Regiment, belonging to that part of the army which had served in the 1805 campaign, had been recruiting up to strength in Russia, and arrived too late to take part in the first actions of the campaign. It had been neither at Poltusk nor at Prusich Elau, and when it joined the army in the field in the second half of the campaign was attached to Platov's division. Platov's division was acting independently of the main army. Several times parts of the Pavlograd regiment had exchanged shots with the enemy, had taken prisoners, and once had even captured Marshal Odenot's carriages. In April the Pavlograds were stationed immovably for some weeks near a totally ruined and deserted German village. A thaw had set in, it was muddy and cold, the ice on the river broke and the roads became impassable. For days neither provisions for the men nor fodder for the horses had been issued. As no transports could arrive, the men dispersed about the abandoned and deserted villages, searching for potatoes, but found few even of these. Everything had been eaten up and the inhabitants had all fled, if any remained, they were worse than beggars, and nothing more could be taken from them. Even the soldiers, usually pitiless enough, instead of taking anything from them, often gave them the last of their rations. 
The Pavlograd regiment had had only two men wounded in action, but had lost nearly half its men from hunger and sickness. In the hospitals, death was so certain that soldiers suffering from fever, or the swelling that came from bad food, preferred to remain on duty, and hardly able to drag their legs went to the front rather than to the hospitals. When spring came on, the soldiers found a plant just showing out of the ground that looked like asparagus, which, for some reason, they called Mashka's sweet root. It was very bitter, but they wandered about the field seeking it, and dug it out with their sabers and ate it, though they were ordered not to do so, as it was a noxious plant. That spring a new disease broke out among the soldiers, a swelling of the arms, legs, and face, which the doctors attributed to eating this root. But in spite of all this, the soldiers of Denisov's squadron fed chiefly on Mashka's sweet root, because it was the second week that the last of the biscuits were being doled out at the rate of half a pound a man, and the last potatoes received had sprouted and frozen. The horses also had been fed for a fortnight on straw from the thatched roofs, and had become terribly thin, though still covered with tufts of felty winter hair. Despite this destitution, the soldiers and officers went on living just as usual. Despite their pale, swollen faces and tattered uniforms, the hussars formed line for roll-call, kept things in order, groomed their horses, polished their arms, brought in straw from the thatched roofs in place of fodder, and sat down to dine round the cauldrons from which they rose up hungry, joking about their nasty food and their hunger. As usual, in their spare time they lit bonfires, steamed themselves before them naked, smoked, picked out and baked sprouting rotten potatoes, told and listened to stories of Potemkin's and Suvarov's campaigns, or to legends of Alicia the Sly, or the priest's laborer, Mikulka. The officers, as usual, lived in twos and threes in the roofless, half-ruined houses. The seniors tried to collect straw and potatoes, and in general food for the men. The younger ones occupied themselves as before, some playing cards, there was plenty of money, though there was no food, some with more innocent games such as quoits and skittles. The general trend of the campaign was rarely spoken of, partly because nothing certain was known about it, partly because there was a vague feeling that in the main it was going badly. Rostov lived as before with Denisov, and since their furlough they had become more friendly than ever. Denisov never spoke of Rostov's family, but by the tender friendship his commander showed him, Rostov felt that the elder hussar's luckless love for Natasha played a part in strengthening their friendship. Denisov evidently tried to expose Rostov to danger as seldom as possible, and after an action greeted his safe return with evident joy. On one of his foraging expeditions, in a deserted and ruined village to which he had come in search of provisions, Rostov found a family consisting of an old Pole and his daughter with an infant in arms. They were half-clad, hungry, too weak to get away on foot, and had no means of obtaining a conveyance. Rostov brought them to his quarters, placed them in his own lodging, and kept them for some weeks while the old man was recovering. One of his comrades, talking of women, began chafing Rostov, saying that he was more wily than any of them and that it would not be a bad thing if he introduced them to the pretty Polish girl he had saved. 
Rostov took the joke as an insult, flared up, and said such unpleasant things to the officer that it was all Denisov could do to prevent a duel. When the officer had gone away, Denisov, who did not himself know what Rostov's relations with the Polish girl might be, began to upbraid him for his quickness of temper, and Rostov replied, "'Say what you like. She is like a sister to me, and I can't tell you how it offended me, because, well, for that reason.' Denisov patted him on the shoulder and began rapidly pacing the room without looking at Rostov, as was his way at moments of deep feeling. "'Ah, what a mad breed you Rostovs are!' he muttered, and Rostov noticed tears in his eyes. End of Book 5, Chapter 15Book 5, Chapter 16 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 16 In April the troops were enlivened by news of the Emperor's arrival, but Rostov had no chance of being present at the review he held at Bartenstein, as the Pavlograds were at the outpost far beyond that place. They were bivouacking. Denisov and Rostov were living in an earth hut, dug out for them by the soldiers and roofed with branches and turf. The hut was made in the following manner, which had then come into vogue. A trench was dug three and a half feet wide, four feet eight inches deep, and eight feet long. At one end of the trench steps were cut out and these formed the entrance and the vestibule. The trench itself was the room, in which the lucky ones, such as the squadron commander, had a board, lying on piles at the end opposite the entrance to serve as a table. On each side of the trench the earth was cut out to a breadth of about two and a half feet, and this did duty for bedsteads and couches. The roof was so constructed that one could stand up in the middle of the trench and could even sit up on the beds if one drew close to the table. Denisov, who was living luxuriously because the soldiers of his squadron liked him, had also a board in the roof at the farther end, with a piece of broken but mended glass in it for a window. When it was very cold, embers from the soldiers' campfire were placed on a bent sheet of iron on the steps in the reception-room, as Denisov called that part of the hut, and it was then so warm that the officers, of whom there were always some with Denisov and Rostov, sat in their shirt-sleeves. In April Rostov was an orderly duty. One morning, between seven and eight, returning after a sleepless night, he sent for embers, changed his rain-soaked underclothes, said his prayers, drank tea, got warm, then tidied up the things on the table and in his own corner, and, his face glowing from exposure to the wind and with nothing on but his shirt, lay down on his back, putting his arms under his head. He was pleasantly considering the probability of being promoted in a few days for his last reconnoitering expedition, and was awaiting Denisov, who had gone out somewhere and with whom he wanted to talk. Suddenly he heard Denisov shouting in a vibrating voice behind the hut, evidently much excited. Rostov moved to the window to see whom he was speaking to, and saw the quartermaster, Topchienko. "'I ordered you not to let them eat that Mashka Woot stuff!' Denisov was shouting, and I saw with my own eyes how Lazarchuk bought some from the fields. I have given the order again and again, Your Honor, but they don't obey," 
answered the quartermaster. Rostov lay down again on his bed and thought complacently, let them fuss and bustle now. My job's done, and I'm lying down. Capitally. He could hear that Lavrushka, that sly, bold orderly of Denisov's, was talking, as well as the quartermaster. Lavrushka was saying something about loaded wagons, biscuits, and oxen he had seen when he had gone out for provisions. Then Denisov's voice was heard shouting farther and farther away. Saddle! Second platoon! Where are they off to now? thought Rostov. Five minutes later, Denisov came into the hut, climbed with muddy boots on the bed, lit his pipe, furiously scattered his things about, took his leaded whip, buckled on his saber, and went out again. In answer to Rostov's inquiry where he was going, he answered vaguely and crossly that he had some business. "'Let God and our great monarch judge me afterwards,' said Denisov, going out, and Rostov heard the hoofs of several horses splashing through the mud. He did not even trouble to find out where Denisov was going. Having got warm in his corner, he fell asleep and did not leave the hut till toward evening. Denisov had not yet returned. The weather had cleared up, and near the next hut two officers and a cadet were playing Zveka, laughing as they threw their missiles which buried themselves in the soft mud. Rostov joined them. In the middle of the game, the officer saw some wagons approaching with fifteen hussars on their skinny horses behind them. The wagons escorted by the hussars drew up to the picket ropes and a crowd of hussars surrounded them. "'There now, Denisov has been worrying,' said Rostov, "'and here are the provisions.' "'So they are,' said the officers. "'Won't the soldiers be glad?' A little behind the hussars came Denisov, accompanied by two infantry officers with whom he was talking. Rostov went to meet them. "'I warn you, Captain,' one of the officers, a short thin man, evidently very angry, was saying. "'Haven't I told you I won't give them up?' replied Denisov. "'You will answer for it, Captain. It is mutiny, seizing the transport of one's own army. Our men have had nothing to eat for two days. And mine have nothing for two weeks.' said Denisov. "'It is robbery! You'll answer for it, sir!' said the infantry officer, raising his voice. "'Now what are you pestering me for?' cried Denisov, suddenly losing his temper. "'I shall answer for it, and not you, and you'd better not buzz about here till you get hurt. Be off! Go!' he shouted at the officers. "'Very well, then!' shouted the little officer, undaunted and not riding away. If you are determined to rob, I'll go to the devil. Quick, march, while you're safe and sound." And Denisov turned his horse on the officer. "'Very well, very well,' muttered the officer, threateningly, and turning his horse he trotted away, jolting in his saddle. "'A dog astwide a fence! A wheel dog astwide a fence!' shouted Denisov after him the most insulting expression a cavalryman can address to a mounted infantryman. And riding up to Rostov, he burst out laughing. "'I've taken transports from the infantry by force,' he said. "'After all, can't let our men starve.' The wagons that had reached the hussars had been consigned to an infantry regiment, but learning from Lavrushka that the transport was unescorted, Denisov with his hussars had seized it by force. The soldiers had biscuits dealt out to them freely, and they even shared them with the other squadrons. The next day 
the regimental commander sent for Denisov, and holding his fingers spread out before his eyes, said, "'This is how I look at this affair. I know nothing about it, and won't begin proceedings. But I advise you to ride over to the staff and settle the business there in the commissariat department, and, if possible, sign a receipt for such and such stores received. If not, as the demand was booked against an infantry regiment, there will be a row, and the affair may end badly." From the regimental commanders, Denisov wrote straight to the staff with a sincere desire to act on this advice. In the evening he came back to his dugout in a state such as Rostov had never yet seen him in. Denisov could not speak, and gasped for breath. When Rostov asked what was the matter, he only muttered some incoherent oaths and threats in a hoarse, feeble voice. Alarmed at Denisov's condition, Rostov suggested that he should undress, drink some water, and send for the doctor. "'Twy me for wabui! Oh! Some more water! Let them twy me! But I'll always thwash scoundrels! And I'll tell the Emperor!' "'Ice!' he muttered. The regimental doctor, when he came, said it was absolutely necessary to bleed Denisov. A deep saucer of black blood was taken from his hairy arm and only then was he able to relate what had happened to him. "'I get there,' began Denisov. "'Now then, where's your chief's quarters?' They were pointed out. "'Please to wait. I've ridden twenty miles and have duties to attend to, and no time to wait. Announce me.' "'Very well. So out comes their head chief. Also took it into his head to lecture me. "'It's wobbly! Wobbly, I say!' is not done by a man who seizes provisions to feed his soldiers, but by him who takes them to fill his own pockets. Will you please be silent? Very good. Then he says, go and give a receipt to the commissioner, but your affair will be passed on to headquarters. I go to the commissioner. I enter, and at the table. Who do you think—no, but wait a bit—who is it that's starving us? shouted Denisov, hitting the table with the fist of his newly bled arm so violently that the table nearly broke down and the tumblers on it jumped about. Talyanin! What? So it's you who's starving us to death, is it? Take this and this! And I hit him so, pat, straight on his snout. Ah, what a, what a! And I started flashing him. Well, I've had a bit of fun, I can tell you cried Denisov, gleeful and yet angry, his white teeth showing under his black moustache. I'd have killed him if they hadn't taken him away. "'But what are you shouting for? Calm yourself,' said Rostov. "'You've set your arm bleeding afresh. Wait, we must tie it up again.' Denisov was bandaged up again and put to bed. Next day he woke calm and cheerful. But at noon the adjutant of the regiment came into Rostov's and Denisov's dugout with a grave and serious face, and regretfully showed them a paper addressed to Major Denisov from the regimental commander, in which inquiries were made about yesterday's occurrence. The adjutant told them that the affair was likely to take a very bad turn, that a court-martial had been appointed, and that in view of the severity with which marauding and insubordination were now regarded, degradation to the ranks would be the best that could be hoped for. The case, as represented by the offended parties, was that, after seizing the transports, Major Denisov, being drunk, went to the chief quartermaster, 
and without any provocation called him a thief, threatened to strike him, and on being let out, had rushed into the office and given two officials a thrashing, and dislocated the arm of one of them. In answering to Rostov's renewed questions, Denisov said, laughing, that he thought he remembered that some other fellow had got mixed up in it, but that it was all nonsense and rubbish, and he did not in the least fear any kind of trial, and that if those scoundrels dared attack him, he would give them an answer that they would not easily forget. Denisov spoke contemptuously of the whole matter, but Rostov knew him too well not to detect that, while hiding it from others, at heart he feared a court-martial and was worried over the affair, which was evidently taking a bad turn. Every day letters of inquiry and notices from the court arrived, and on the 1st of May Denisov was ordered to hand the squadron over to the next in seniority, and appear before the staff of his division to explain his violence at the commissariat office. On the previous day Platov reconnoitred with two Cossack regiments and two squadrons of hussars. Denisov, as was his wont, rode out in front of the outposts, parading his courage. A bullet, fired by a French sharpshooter, hit him in the fleshy part of his leg. Perhaps at another time Denisov would not have left the regiment for so slight a wound, but now he took advantage of it to excuse himself from appearing at the staff and went into hospital. End of Book 5, Chapter 16book 5 chapter 17 of war and peace volume 2 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 5 chapter 17 in june the battle of friedland was fought in which the pavlograds did not take part and after that an armistice was proclaimed rostov who felt his friend's absence very much having no news of him since he left and feeling very anxious about his wound and the progress of his affairs, took advantage of the armistice to get leave to visit Denisov in hospital. The hospital was in a small Prussian town that had been twice devastated by Russian and French troops. Because it was summer, when it was so beautiful out in the fields, the little town presented a particularly dismal appearance, with its broken roofs and fences, its foul streets, tattered inhabitants, and the sick and drunken soldiers wandering about. The hospital was in a brick building with some of the window frames and panes broken, and a courtyard surrounded by the remains of a wooden fence that had been pulled to pieces. Several bandaged soldiers with pale swollen faces were sitting or walking about in the sunshine in the yard. Directly Rostov entered the door he was enveloped by a smell of putrefaction and hospital air. On the stairs he met a Russian army doctor smoking a cigar. The doctor was followed by a Russian assistant. "'I can't tear myself to pieces,' the doctor was saying. "'Come to Makar Alexeyevich in the evening. I shall be there.' The assistant asked some further questions. "'Oh, do the best you can. Isn't it all the same?' The doctor noticed Rostov coming upstairs. "'What do you want, sir?' said the doctor. "'What do you want?' The bullets having spared you, do you want to try typhus? This is a pest-house, sir." "'How so?' asked Rostov. "'Typhus, sir. It's death to go in. Only we two, Mikheyev and I,' he pointed to the assistant, "'keep on here. Some five of us doctors have died in this place. 
When a new one comes, he is done for in a week,' said the doctor with evident satisfaction. "'Prussian doctors have been invited here, but our allies don't like it at all.' Rostov explained that he wanted to see Major Denisov of the Hussars, who was wounded. "'I don't know. I can't tell you, sir. Only think. I am alone in charge of three hospitals with more than four hundred patients. It's well that the charitable Prussian lady send us two pounds of coffee and some lint each month, or we should be lost.' He laughed. Four hundred, sir, and they're always sending me fresh ones. "'There are four hundred, eh?' he asked, turning to the assistant. The assistant looked fagged out. He was evidently vexed and impatient for the talkative doctor to go. "'Major Denisov,' Rostov said again. He was wounded at Molliton. "'Dead, I fancy. Eh, Mikheyev?' queried the doctor, in a tone of indifference. The assistant, however, did not confirm the doctor's words. "'Is he tall, with reddish hair?' asked the doctor. Rostov described Denisov's appearance. "'There was one like that,' said the doctor, as if pleased. "'That was dead, I fancy. However, I'll look up our list. We have a list. Have you got it, Mikhaev? Makar Alexeyevich has the list,' answered the assistant. "'But if you'll step into the officer's wards, you'll see for yourself,' he added, turning to Rostov. "'Ah, you better not go, sir,' said the doctor, "'or you may have to stay here yourself.' But Rostov bowed himself away from the doctor and asked the assistant to show him the way. "'Only don't blame me!' the doctor shouted up after him. Rostov and the assistant went into the dark corridor. The smell was so strong there that Rostov held his nose, and had to pause and collect his strength before he could go on. A door opened to the right, and an emaciated sallow man on crutches, barefoot and in underclothing, limped out, and leaning against the doorpost, looked with glittering envious eyes at those who were passing. Glancing at the door, Rostov saw that the sick and wounded were lying on the floor on straw and overcoats. "'May I go in and look?' "'What is there to see?' said the assistant. But just because the assistant evidently did not want him to go in, Rostov entered the soldier's ward. The foul air, to which he had already begun to get used in the corridor, was still stronger here. It was a little different, more pungent, and one felt that this was where it originated. In the long room, brightly lit up by the sun through the large windows, the sick and wounded lay in two rows with their heads to the walls, and leaving a passage in the middle. Most of them were unconscious and paid no attention to the newcomers. Those who were conscious raised themselves or lifted their thin yellow faces, and all looked intently at Rostov with the same expression of hope, of relief, reproach, and envy of another's health. Rostov went to the middle of the room, and looking through the open doors into the two adjoining rooms saw the same thing there. He stood still, looking silently around. He had not at all expected such a sight. Just before him, almost across the middle of the passage on the bare floor, lay a sick man, probably a Cossack to judge by the cut of his hair. The man lay on his back, his huge arms and legs outstretched. His face was purple, his eyes were rolled back so that only the whites were seen, and on his bare legs and arms, which were still red, the veins stood out like cords. He was knocking the back of his head against the floor, hoarsely uttering some word which he kept repeating. Rostov listened and made out the word. It was 
Drink, drink, a drink. Rostov glanced round, looking for someone who would put this man back in his place and bring him water. Who looks after the sick here? he asked the assistant. Just then a commissariat soldier, a hospital orderly, came in from the next room, marching stiffly, and drew up in front of Rostov. "'Good day, Your Honor,' he shouted, rolling his eyes at Rostov, and evidently mistaking him for one of the hospital authorities. "'Get him to his place and give him some water,' said Rostov, pointing to the Cossack. "'Yes, Your Honor,' the soldier replied complacently, and rolling his eyes more than ever he drew himself up still straighter, but did not move. No, it's impossible to do anything here," thought Rostov, lowering his eyes, and he was going out, but became aware of an intense look fixed on him on his right, and he turned. Close to the corner, on an overcoat, sat an old, unshaven, grey-bearded soldier, as thin as a skeleton, with a stern sallow face and eyes intently fixed on Rostov. The man's neighbour on one side whispered something to him, pointing at Rostov who noticed that the old man wanted to speak to him. He drew nearer and saw that the old man had only one leg bent under him, the other had been amputated above the knee. His neighbor on the other side, who lay motionless some distance from him with his head thrown back, was a young soldier with a snub nose. His pale waxen face was still freckled, and his eyes were rolled back. Rostov looked at the young soldier, and a cold chill ran down his back. Why. This one seems," he began, turning to the assistant. "'And how we've been begging, Your Honor,' said the old soldier, his jaw quivering. "'He's been dead since morning. After all, we're men, not dogs.' "'I'll send someone at once. He shall be taken away, taken away at once,' said the assistant hurriedly. "'Let us go, Your Honor.' "'Yes, yes, let us go,' said Rostov hastily and lowering his eyes and shrinking, he tried to pass unnoticed between the rows of reproachful, envious eyes that were fixed upon him and went out of the room. End of Book 5, Chapter 17「Book 5, Chapter 18 of War and Peace, Volume 2 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Eighteen. Going along the corridor, the assistant led Rostov to the officers' wards, consisting of three rooms, the doors of which stood open. There were beds in these rooms, and the sick and wounded officers were lying or sitting on them. Some were walking about the rooms in hospital dressing gowns. The first person Rostov met in the officer's ward was a thin little man with one arm, who was walking about the first room in a nightcap and hospital dressing-gown, with a pipe between his teeth. Rostov looked at him, trying to remember where he had seen him before. "'See where we've met again,' said the little man. "'Tushin! Tushin! Don't you remember? Who gave you a lift at Schungrabern? And I've had a bit cut off, you see.' he went on with a smile, pointing to the empty sleeve of his dressing-gown. "'Looking for Vasily Dmitrich Denisov? My neighbor,' he added, when he heard who Rostov wanted. "'Here, here!' And Tushin led him into the next room, from whence came sounds of several laughing voices. "'How can they laugh, or even live at all here?' thought Rostov, 
still aware of that smell of decomposing flesh that had been so strong in the soldier's ward, and still seeming to see fixed on him those envious looks which had followed him out from both sides, and the face of that young soldier with eyes rolled back. Denisov lay asleep on his bed with his head under the blanket, though it was nearly noon. "'Ah, Wostov! How are you? How are you?' he called out, still in the same voice as in the regiment, but Rostov noticed sadly that under this habitual ease and animation some new, sinister, hidden feeling showed itself in the expression of Denisov's face and the intonations of his voice. His wound, though a slight one, had not yet healed even now, six weeks after he had been hit. His face had the same swollen pallor as the faces of the other hospital patients, but it was not this that struck Rostov. What struck him was that Denisov did not seem glad to see him, and smiled at him unnaturally. He did not ask about the regiment, nor about the general state of affairs, and when Rostov spoke of these matters did not listen. Rostov even noticed that Denisov did not like to be reminded of the regiment, or in general of that other free life which was going on outside the hospital. He seemed to try to forget that old life, and was only interested in the affair with the commissariat officers. On Rostov's inquiry as to how the matter stood, he at once produced from under his pillow a paper he had received from the commission, and the rough draft of his answer to it. He became animated when he began reading his paper and specially drew Rostov's attention to the stinging rejoinders he made to his enemies. His hospital companions, who had gathered round Rostov, a fresh arrival from the world outside, gradually began to disperse as soon as Denisov began reading his answer. Rostov noticed by their faces that all these gentlemen had already heard that story more than once and were tired of it. Only the man who had the next bed, a stout Ulan, continued to sit on his bed, gloomily frowning and smoking a pipe, and little one-armed Tushin still listened, shaking his head disapprovingly. In the middle of the reading the Ulan interrupted Denisov. "'But what I say is,' he said, turning to Rostov, "'it would be best simply to petition the Emperor for pardon. They say great rewards will now be distributed, and surely a pardon would be granted.' "'Me petition the Emperor?' exclaimed Denisov in a voice to which he tried hard to give the old energy and fire, but which sounded like an expression of irritable impotence. "'What for? If I were a wobber, I would ask for mercy, but I am being court-martialed for bringing wobbers to book. Let them twy me. I'm not afraid of anyone. I've served the saw and my country honorably, and have not stolen. And am I to be degraded? Listen, I'm writing to them straight. This is what I say.' If I had wobbed the treasury, It's certainly well written, said Tushin, but that's not the point, Vasily Dmitrich. And he also turned to Rostov. One has to submit, and Vasily Dmitrich doesn't want to. You know the auditor told you it was a bad business. Well, let it be bad, said Denisov. The auditor wrote out a petition for you, continued Tushin, and you ought to sign it and ask this gentleman to take it. No doubt he, indicating Rostov, has connections on the staff. You won't find a better opportunity. Haven't I said I'm not going to grovel? Denisov interrupted him, went on reading his paper. Rostov had not the courage to persuade Denisov, 
though he instinctively felt that the way advised by Tushin and the other officers was the safest, and though he would have been glad to be of service to Denisov. He knew his stubborn will and straightforward hasty temper. When the reading of Denisov's virulent reply, which took more than an hour, was over, Rostov said nothing, and he spent the rest of the day in a most dejected state of mind amid Denisov's hospital comrades, who had gathered round him, telling them what he knew and listening to their stories. Denisov was moodily silent all the evening. Late in the evening, when Rostov was about to leave, he asked Denisov whether he had no commission for him. "'Yes, wait a bit,' said Denisov, glancing round at the officers, and taking his papers from under his pillow, he went to the window, where he had an ink-pot and sat down to write. "'It seems it's no use knocking one's head against a wall,' he said coming from the window and giving Rostov a large envelope. In it was the petition to the Emperor drawn up by the auditor, in which Denisov, without alluding to the offences of the commissariat officials, simply asked for pardon. "'Hand it in. It seems—' He did not finish, but gave a painfully unnatural smile. End of Book Five, Chapter Eighteen Book Five, Chapter Nineteen, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Nineteen. Having returned to the regiment and told the commander the state of Denisov's affairs, Rostov rode to Tilsit with a letter to the Emperor. On the thirteenth of June, the French and Russian emperors arrived in Tilsit. Boris Drubetskoy had asked the important personage of whom he was in attendance to include him in the suite appointed for the stay at Tilsit. "'I should like to see the great man,' he said, alluding to Napoleon, whom hitherto he, like everyone else, had always called Bonaparte. "'You are speaking of Bonaparte?' asked the general, smiling. Boris looked at his general inquiringly, and immediately saw that he was being tested. "'I am speaking, Prince.' of the Emperor Napoleon," he replied. The general patted him on the shoulder with a smile. "'You will go far,' he said, and took him to Tilsit with him. Boris was among the few present at the Neiman on the day the two emperors met. He saw the raft, decorated with monograms, saw Napoleon pass before the French guards on the farther bank of the river, saw the pensive face of the Emperor Alexander as he sat in silence in a tavern on the bank of the Neiman awaiting Napoleon's arrival, saw both emperors get into boats, and saw how Napoleon, reaching the raft first, stepped quickly forward to meet Alexander and held out his hand to him, and how they both retired into the pavilion. Since he had begun to move in the highest circles, Boris made it his habit to watch attentively all that went on around him and to note it down. At the time of the meeting at Tilsit, he asked the names of those who had come with Napoleon, and about the uniforms they wore, and listened attentively to words spoken by important personages. At the moment the emperors went into the pavilion he looked at his watch, and did not forget to look at it again when Alexander came out. The interview had lasted an hour and fifty-three minutes. He noted this down that same evening, among other facts he felt to be of historic importance. As the emperor's suite was a very small one, it was a matter of great importance 
for a man who valued his success in the service, to be at Tilsit on the occasion of this interview between the two emperors, and having succeeded in this, Bors felt that henceforth his position was fully assured. He had not only become known, but people had grown accustomed to him and accepted him. Twice he had executed commissions to the emperor himself, so that the latter knew his face. And all those at court, far from cold-shouldering him as at first when they considered him a newcomer, would now have been surprised had he been absent. Boris lodged with another adjutant, the Polish Count Zelinsky. Zelinsky, a Pole brought up in Paris, was rich, and passionately fond of the French. And almost every day of the stay at Tilsit, French officers of the guard and from French headquarters were dining and lunching with him and Boris. On the evening of the 24th of June, Count Zelinsky arranged a supper for his French friends. The guest of honor was an aide-de-camp of Napoleon's. There were also several French officers of the guard and a page of Napoleon's, a young lad of an old aristocratic French family. That same day Rostov, profiting by the darkness to avoid being recognized in civilian dress, came to Tilsit and went to the lodging occupied by Boris and Zelinsky. Rostov, in common with the whole army from which he came, was far from having experienced the change of feeling toward Napoleon and the French, who from being foes had suddenly become friends, that had taken place at headquarters and in Boris. In the army, Bonaparte and the French were still regarded with mingled feelings of anger, contempt, and fear. Only recently, talking with one of Platov's Cossack officers, Rostov had argued that if Napoleon were taken prisoner, he would be treated not as a sovereign but as a criminal. Quite lately, happening to meet a wounded French colonel on the road, Rostov had maintained with heat that peace was impossible between a legitimate sovereign and the criminal Bonaparte. Rostov was therefore unpleasantly struck by the presence of French officers in Boris' lodging, dressed in uniforms he had been accustomed to see from quite a different point of view from the outposts of the flank. As soon as he noticed a French officer who thrust his head out of the door, that warlike feeling of hostility which he always experienced at the sight of the enemy suddenly seized him. He stopped at the threshold and asked in Russian whether Drubetskoy lived there. Boris, hearing a strange voice in the anteroom, came out to meet him. An expression of annoyance showed itself for a moment on his face on first recognizing Rostov. "'Ah, it's you? Very glad, very glad to see you,' he said, however, coming toward him with a smile. But Rostov had noticed his first impulse. "'I've come at a bad time, I think. I should not have come.' but I have business," he said coldly. "'No, I only wonder how you managed to get away from your regiment. Dans un moment je suis à vous. In a minute I shall be at your disposal,' he said, answering someone who called him. "'I see I'm intruding,' Rostov repeated. The look of annoyance had already disappeared from Boris's face. Having evidently reflected and decided how to act, he very quietly took both Rostov's hands and led him into the next room. His eyes, looking serenely and steadily at Rostov, seemed to be veiled by something, as if screened by blue spectacles of conventionality. So it seemed to Rostov. "'Oh, come now, as if you could come at a wrong time,' said Boris, and he led him into the room where the supper-table was laid and introduced him to his guests, explaining that he was not a civilian but an hussar officer and an old friend of his. "'Count Zelinsky, the Count N. N., Le Capitaine S. S., 
said he, naming his guests. Rostov looked frowningly at the Frenchman, bowed reluctantly, and remained silent. Zelinsky evidently did not receive this new Russian person very willingly into his circle, and did not speak to Rostov. Boris did not appear to notice the constraint the newcomer produced, and with the same pleasant composure and the same veiled look in his eyes with which he had met Rostov, tried to enliven the conversation. One of the Frenchmen, with the politeness characteristic of his countrymen, addressed the obstinately taciturn Rostov, saying that the latter had probably come to Tilsit to see the Emperor. "'No, I came on business,' replied Rostov briefly. Rostov had been out of humour from the moment he noticed the look of dissatisfaction on Boris's face, and as always happens to those in a bad humour, it seemed to him that everyone regarded him with aversion and that he was in everybody's way. He really was in their way, for he alone took no part in the conversation which again became general. The looks the visitors cast on him seemed to say, "'And what is he sitting here for?' He rose and went up to Boris. "'Anyhow, I'm in your way,' he said in a low tone. "'Come and talk over my business, and I'll go away.' "'Oh, no, not at all,' said Boris. "'But if you are tired, come and lie down in my room and have a rest.' "'Yes, really.' They went into the little room where Boris slept. Rostov, without sitting down, began at once, irritably, as if Boris were to blame in some way, telling him about Denisov's affair, asking him whether, through his general, he could and would intercede with the Emperor on Denisov's behalf and get Denisov's petition handed in. When he and Boris were alone, Rostov felt for the first time that he could not look Boris in the face without a sense of awkwardness. Boris, with one leg crossed over the other and stroking his left hand with the slender fingers of his right, listened to Rostov as a general listens to the report of a subordinate, now looking aside, and now gazing straight into Rostov's eyes with the same veiled look. Each time this happened, Rostov felt uncomfortable and cast down his eyes. "'I have heard of such cases, and know that His Majesty is very severe in such affairs. I think it would be best not to bring it before the Emperor, but to apply to the Commander of the Corps. But, in general, I think—so you don't want to do anything? Well, then say so!' Rostov almost shouted, not looking Boris in the face. Boris smiled. "'On the contrary, I will do what I can. Only, I thought—' At that moment Zelinsky's voice was heard calling Boris. "'Well, then, go, go, go,' said Rostov, and refusing supper and remaining alone in the little room, he walked up and down for a long time, hearing the light-hearted French conversation from the next room. End of Book 5, Chapter 19